The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Deborah Phillips, Dr. Deborah Phillips, one of America's leading behavior therapists. Uh, she is the former director of the Princeton Center for Behavior Therapy, Temple University School of Medicine Sex Therapy Program, and the Beverly Hills Center for Anxiety and Depression. Her new book is How to Fall Out of Love. And uh, in her new book, she talks about and gives us a step-by-step interactive process so that we can disengage ourselves from our old lovers, partners, um, whoever we uh, are, are trying, I guess, our old lovers or or, or spouses even. Um, but welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Deborah. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Okay, you have in your book you give us a, a new a technique, I guess, uh, and you uh, this is a revised edition of your old book, uh, How to Fall Out of Love. Uh, my question is, why do we need a technique for saying goodbye to somebody who uh, it isn't working for us in a relationship? What's wrong with it? Can't we just say, well, why do we need a step by step technique? Can't we just say goodbye? It's over. It's not working for either one of us, or um, or are we not able to do that? We're not able to do that. <clears throat> Rejection is so painful that it renders us ineffective as far as dealing with uh, the whole situation. Uh, We are left with so many competing emotions uh, that we we just cannot deal with what we need to deal with. Um, When one is rejected in love, one develops many symptoms that preclude doing anything else, even eating, sleeping, thinking, working. Um, that's all taken over by, first of all, obsessive thinking. Dr. Phillips, let me ask you this. What about, okay, that's if we're rejected. Somebody says, you know, they tell us they don't want to be with us anymore. And then rejection, as you say, is just, not something that we deal with well. But does this also work? Perhaps one wants to end the relationship themselves. It's not necessarily that they get rejected, but they want to end a relationship. It's not working for them, but yet they also can't seem to let go. And so does this technique work in the same way in that kind of a situation? It does, and it's easier. If you're the one leaving the relationship, even if it's very difficult, it's never as difficult as if someone left you. Right, so we're gonna, maybe we should focus then on the one where you get rejected or you feel like you're rejected. And so you, as you describe, I mean, I, I've usually been the one, to be honest, I mean, over the years to be the rejector, I, I've rejected the other person. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sure they got over me. I don't think that was a problem. But <laughs> it, it may have been a problem, but you didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but I didn't know it. But... Um, 
this works also. I'm this technique, and we're going to talk specifically about the technique. But I, I'm assuming whether you're 15 or you're 75, mm-hmm. but it works for all the generations. I know you updated this book. You said for a new generation, and I wonder what some of the changes were. Many, but first, that 15-year-old. You know, we affectionately refer to it as puppy love. We need to take it. Mm, much more seriously. There's an epidemic of teenage suicide, much of it caused by rejection. Um, and the, the updated has to do with the entrance into the era of new technology where things are instantaneously uh, derived. People want instant love. They jump into bed very early, too early. Uh, they are not giving time for the dignity of friendship to develop in a relationship. Uh, and they decide they're in love after five hours or 15 hours. It's too quick. Okay, so that's too quick. And I was thinking, you know, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking another thing that's quick. And I, I've, uh, some of my friends and some of their, their, their kids, their daughters in particular, have been rejected in an email. You talk about like, and so that's very different than you know, say that maybe you're the first generation or the first book you wrote when you were talking about being rejected because you just get an email saying it's over. Uh, that has to have a different impact than if someone sits down with you and takes you out for dinner and tells you it's over. Well, that reflects the the new era. People are rejected in an online dating situation, even before the email of, you know, after uh, meeting, uh, they're rejected out of hand because of their profile. That's what's so different about this new era, part of what's different. So in other words, you're saying I, that, like, if you're doing online dating, which I, I, I don't know what the statistics are, but it's, it's millions of people here, at least in the United States, who are doing online dating. It's worldwide, actually. Yes. Uh, so you're getting rejected before anybody sees you. Well, maybe to me it would seem that the impact wouldn't be as great because I would feel, well, they never really even saw me. No. I mean, they just saw a photograph, and they really never even talked to me, and they haven't been in my home, and all the other stuff that makes the relationship a little more intimate. I may not feel quite as rejected. That's um, it, true. Yeah. yeah, it's just that the frequency is so high. But well, it, it, yeah, you're not feeling as rejected. Well, if it's so high, then you get used to it too. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, another one down the tube. I'm not going to worry about this. <laughs> you're getting getting hardened. <laughs> exactly, you're getting hardened. But let's go through your step by step because let's face it. I mean, some people, many people, and it can be a marriage, it can be a long term. You may be living with somebody for a long time, or you may be dating somebody very seriously, and then this rejection it is painful. It really does hurt because you've really given of yourself and your time and all. And there's an intimacy that, and some somebody may also be attached to your your children or your you know other people in your own family. So. You have some very specific kinds of things as a behavioral therapist. I want to go over some of these because what to do when you become obsessed with a person who doesn't want to be with you anymore. And that obsession can take the form of thinking about this 500 times a day to the exclusion of being able to think, eat, sleep, work, dream, do anything except obsess about, usually it's, 
the positive things only that you're obsessing about. Those moonlight walks, the romantic dinners, making love, uh, beautiful things, not the negative things. And thinking about this, obsessing 500 times a day uh, leads to depression. The first person I've ever, I ever saw with this problem had attempted suicide before she saw me. And I just need to say something, as I say, before she saw me, because it's equally painful for men and women. When I looked at the first hundred cases that I had seen before I wrote the book, it was equal, 50 men, 50 women. Some of because, them... Yeah, and the picture is, you know, it's usually at least... I mean, I guess this is a myth, or you're dispelling the myth, because I think of it, oh, it's always women. They seem to get... The men don't seem to have... They don't care once they get rejected. I mean, not that they don't care, but they seem to be able to move on quicker after someone's broken up with them. You're saying not true, it's equal. The myth is that men are stronger. The The reality is that they don't cry until they get to my office. Men don't have an all-round best friend, typically. They have card-playing friends, skiing friends, beer-drinking friends, bowling friends, but they don't have the kind of friend that women have where women can cry on somebody's shoulder because that person knows them so well. Well, you call up your best girlfriend and you tell her that your boyfriend broke up with you and she will tell you how she hated him anyway. He was nasty and he was, and she's glad that he's out of your, out of the picture and you can call up two other girlfriends and they'll tell you the same thing or your sister. Right. Yeah. But men don't have those kinds of relationships. So they weep in my office for the first time. And, uh, they're not any stronger. I mean, the myth is that men are stronger and they can deal with rejection without batting an eyelash. It's just not true. Well, Dr. Phillips, you were in your your um, spe- very specific, um, easy to follow therapeutic guide. I mean, you just mentioned this. You have, you know, women or and men will start obsessing about how great the relationship was, how you know they were such walks on the beach and vacations or whatever it was. But so if you replace that, is this what you have to do with, with like, well, you know, yeah. he wasn't really that good in bed to begin with, to be honest. <laughs> I was always trying to make up for it, but he wasn't. And he, you know, he had put on a few pounds, and I really didn't like the movies he liked. If you kind of replace those thoughts with these thoughts, is that helpful? Is that what you're talking about? Well, the first step is thought stopping, where you stop and you replace you, you learn how to stop these thoughts very specifically, and you practice it until you're thinking about it three, three times a day rather than 500 times, 503 times a day. And um, once you can do that, we can move on to the second step, which is crumbling the pedestal. As you say, you know, thinking only about the good things and exaggerating the good things and forgetting the flaws. And for that, we do something that I call silent ridicule, which has a lot of humor to it, fortunately. We need humor in this situation. And when I hear the first chuckle, 
I, it's music because this person hasn't chuckled in a long time. Right, so si- okay, silent. Silent, silent ridicule. Ridicule. Okay, so what do you do? Well, you imagine this person in an absurd and ridiculous situation, image. You take the person and you make them toothless, bald, picking their nose at an important meeting, wearing <laughs> diapers, drinking a baby's bottle, carrying a big red balloon with a big red bow around their neck. You know, something that makes you laugh. Donald Duck's head, Mickey Mouse on the phone. It makes for a mad, mad world, and it makes for laughter. That's great, guys, and that does work. You, that is a, that's, it, you know, some of these, like, what I like about behavior therapy, and obviously you're a behavior therapist, some of the things that one has to do are so simple, and if you kind of do them, like you say, in this step-by-step process, it really does work. You don't have to be in therapy over this person for six years. Exactly. Yeah, Simple trying... but profound in its effect. Yeah. This, well, this the technique I just described has been called a little gem by many people who've experienced it, the silent ridicule. It's, it's humorous, but it's really powerful. I would put that at the number one at the top of the list. You've got one here called overcoming jealousy. So what he he or she breaks up with you, and then you see them with somebody else, and that like puts you in a in a in a rage, or or you just imagine them with somebody else. You don't even have to see them. The imagination takes great leaps and can wound deeply, deeply wound. Jealousy so, is the hardest. It's the most difficult of the steps even when I'm working with the person, not just when they're reading the book and trying to do it on their own, I don't get 100%, and I, I am a perfectionist. Uh, we get, I've gotten 100% success rate with people who have been rejected, which is rather amazing. We don't get 100% with anything, nothing I've ever done before and nothing anyone's ever done before, and yet... I've had 100% success with this issue, as difficult as it is. But that doesn't mean I get to perfection with jealousy. Jealousy is a green-eyed monster. It's primitive. It's powerful. And it's not just the domain of the insecure. Some of the most successful and not insecure people, but assertive and... um, uh, yes, yeah, successful people still are jealous. There's a whole idea of, I, I think it, it, it goes back to, and men and women both, uh, um, Dr. Phillips, that it's it, something about this is mine and I own it and this ownership, and even as particularly maybe when you've been married to somebody and you know you don't want to be with them, but you really don't want them to be with anybody else either. I mean, it's irrational. It's not rational no. thinking. But but it's still there, you know, and I can be, and even couples, and I've seen them in, in, in counseling, they'll be with somebody else, the person, but they don't want their, in, in their minds, they don't want to picture or see or feel or have any kind of a um, an understanding that perhaps their ex is with somebody else. Well, you know, we don't want our uh, parents to turn to somebody else when we're in the crib. We want their attention. This may start that far back. Jealousy is so deeply rooted that it may have its roots very early in life. Very hard to shirk it. There are some people who are just not jealous people. 
and they're really very fortunate because it's a double negative. To feel jealous is a negative feeling. As you said, it's not objective. You know, it's not rational. It's emotional. Because yeah. it's not really that you want to still be with this person. Right. But, yeah, it may so not, not be. Right. You may want to, but you may not. You may not, exactly. And, but as you said, you still don't want them to be with somebody else. Now, one of the things that you have on this list is Internet dating. Does that mean, like, once you get rejected, just go right onto the Internet and try to get a date with somebody? Because you can do it quickly. I mean, it would seem to me that could be helpful, in the sh- at least in the short term, because, you know, 20 years ago you kind of had to sit away. You know, somebody had to fix you up. You had to go to a bar. Now you can be more proactive about it. Get on the net and try to get yourself out there again. You can do it more quickly. People don't seem to have the time for the old-style matchmaking that used to ensue with blind dating, blind dates and friends fixing you up. So the Internet has provided a wonderful, in, in many, many cases, outlet, as you say, after you have been ended or even if you've ended uh, a relationship, you can go and take a look at, what might be compatible for you. What about Facebook? How would that fit into the picture? Because I'm thinking, um, you know, you're, let's say you do get rejected and you, you are angry and you are upset. Now, traditionally, you'll call up your girlfriends and they'll support you and stuff. Do, do younger people now, do they, like, let's say if they've been rejected, get on Facebook and start talking about the person or go into chat rooms and that kind of stuff? Because that may not be such a good thing to do. Facebook can be very destructive. The last situation with Facebook that I was told about had pictures and discussions about the person's new adventures, the new people they were meeting, the new person they cared about. And the person who had been rejected saw all of this and was absolutely devastated. That was very, very difficult to overcome. I mean, we did it, but with difficulty, and Facebook had provided a major obstacle to moving on. Yeah, I'm picked not only Facebook, and you have Twitter, and you have all kinds of... <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You can be Twittering and tweeting and the everything tweet. else. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, we're chuckling now, but it, it can be really devastating because See, now the whole world has been brought into this and knows the intimate details of the new adventures. So that has to be a real challenge for you as a therapist. I mean, that really changes the playing field, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's why I revised the book. It needed to include this new world. All right. Now, one of the you you talk about uh, this is not necessarily new. This is something that uh, would be, I guess, more traditional. um, Getting on with a new love and a new life. So. That takes a little bit more, I guess, contemplating, thinking about. I mean, when you're sitting with somebody in therapy, do you talk about the fact that, well, perhaps maybe this relationship wasn't good for you and you are, you repeat these kinds of relationships because some people are constantly getting rejected? Um, because that's another category. Let's talk about that. Well, that has to do with self-image, and that's a major focus point of this program, repairing the damaged self-image of feeling worthless, uh, useless. No one is ever going to love me again because I'm not lovable. And if the person who loved me has left me, I must be totally without redemption Um, because that person 
you know, really valued me and now has left maybe for somebody else or just left me. I'm not a worthwhile human being. We do a lot of work there, starting with tell me one thing you feel good about in yourself. That's where we start. And often they can't answer that. I'm not asking for five or ten things, but just one. And in the state they're in, it's a depression state. It's very profound. They cannot come up with one. And so I give them multiple choice. Tell me something that you feel good about in your work life, in, um, in your hobby life. You know, I, I understand that you collect stamps. Do you feel good about, you know, how you do, how you go about that? We start with tiny little steps to repair that damaged self-esteem. What about, Dr. Phillips, it's not the person necessarily, but it's the circumstance. I'm going to give you two examples. I mean, there's one example of, let's say, you've been dating and you've been dating somebody for six months and they say goodbye and and you are somewhat devastated. Um, But what about the, and I've had, this says something about my friends, I guess, but I've had two friends whose husbands have been uh, affairs with their secretaries for 20 or 30 years over a lifetime and finally, their husbands leave them. Now, what do you do in that kind of, I mean, action? Well, you know, it depends on, we, I treat each situation uh, as unique. I mean, because it usually is. As human beings, we're all so different. But if it's been over a long period of time, if it's been a long affair, that they haven't known about and they've suddenly found out about, it's it's devastating as well. It doesn't matter whether it's short or long. It's how deep it is. And it can be deep rather quickly in, in a few months or it can have hundreds of thousands of associations because it's gone on for so long. It's very difficult to break those links. But I use the same steps. Uh, it may take longer. <clears throat> I can't say. Sometimes it doesn't take longer. Sometimes the intensity of falling in love and that chemistry of attraction is so strong early on after a few weeks or months. But the associations, the children, uh, the the family, as you said, you know, we have our families involved. There are children it's much easier when there aren't children because they often become the pawns of these very destructive and difficult emotions. Well, but I go through the same steps with that. It's the same steps, in other words, no matter what the circumstances are. Exactly. It might take, yeah, so it might take a little longer, but I, what you're saying is the, I guess the process is the same. So. The process is the same. The thought-stopping, the silent ridicule, the repairing of the self-image, the dealing with jealousy... It's and and then dealing with the magic of of physical attraction, and for that I use some nasty <laughs> weapons. Because uh, t- give us tell us one of those. Na- give us an example and give us a nasty weapon that we can use if we need it because people who are listening may need one of those nasty weapons. This is called repulsion, and physical attraction is so strong 
that we need strong weapons to combat it. So we use the most repulsive, nastiest, foul-smelling substances, uh, insects, little animals, and whatever it is for that person, whether it's vomit or or blood, you know, it depends, or snakes, cockroaches. We have the person uh, imagining the other person covered in this, whatever That's it is. That's nasty. <laughs> That's really nasty. And, you know, some people who are not in the situation have said, oh, how can you do that to somebody, to a person? You're not doing it to a person. You're helping a person use this to their advantage to get out of feeling so hopeless and, and lost and depressed. Lost is a good word <clears throat> for how the person is feeling. Suddenly their world has been shattered. And um, the chemistry of physical attraction is powerful. And that's why we need these powerful and nasty uh, techniques to combat it. So does anyone ever, when you're doing this with them or after, do they feel guilty or do they feel... Yes. Yeah. How can I do that to this person? Exactly. And um, I just... I mean, I, I tell them that this is a time they need to think about themselves as well because they're in so much pain. And I haven't had anyone reject the process of repulsion as nasty as it is because when they realize that it's, it's a therapeutic tool, they're not damaging that other person. Um, they're just damaging the image of that person and the feelings about that person to their um, to their good, not detriment. I think chemistry, as you've mentioned, is the most difficult thing to overcome because you can be with somebody you know they you know they may not be you know they, there may be so many things that you don't have in common, but when you have that chemistry, uh, that sort of just animalistic chemistry, as you're describing it, it's just overpowering, and that's so difficult and to kind of separate from, I, I guess unless you replace it with somebody else who you have a similar chemistry or better. Right. It's a magical feeling, and it's hard to deal with magical feelings in an objective way. They're magical, and so they're wonderful. They're compelling. We want to hold on to them. So what about some of your clients? I mean, obviously without revealing who they are, but I mean, do you, when you have, because it sounds like you really are successful, and so do you get a lot of feedback from your clients, like after they've gotten over the rejection and they go on to next, and, and you get some feedback in terms of their new relationships? I've been invited to many weddings, and I get postcards from many um, relationship travels, and that's really gratifying to me. Yes, I do get that kind of feedback. It's wonderful. Oh, let me ask you this, though. Okay, so you go to the weddings of the people that you have been in therapy. They're able to establish new relationships. How about do, you, do they ever come back to you again the second time because they've been rejected again or, you know, in terms of a repeat behavior or not? You know, I haven't had that. Um, I think by strengthening their self-image, uh, in, in an intense way as we do, <clears throat> I've enabled them 
to make wiser choices. <clears throat> and also, if they need to deal with this again, they are capable through the book without my help. And that feels good as well. Yeah, see, I, that's a good point. So they have the skills. They've been through the process. They have the book. They've been through the or and and or they've been through the process with you. So it's not like starting over again. No, they are feeling better about being able to deal with this, and they can. They are able. It's not easy. This is very painful. People say more painful than losing someone through a tragedy of death. Well, death you don't feel responsible for, I think, and, the, and you don't blame the other person either. So you've got exactly. both of those things going on. But if someone says, is, you know, we're ending this relationship, there's a lot of, they have that choice or you feel they had a choice. And, right. And if someone yeah. dies, they're not choosing to right. reject you. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, we, um, we're going to have to say goodbye. My second guest is ready. But I want to mention the book again. Um, how to Fall Out of Love, and it's Dr. Deborah Phillips. And Dr. Phillips, what website can we go to to um, get information about the book and you? Because you do a lot of different kinds of things. www.drg, David Robert, Robert David Phillips, with two L's, dot com. And I invite your listeners to ask me any questions through email. I will answer any question that comes to me. And that um, email address is Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-P, as in Peter, Deborah P, at earthlink.net. Deborah P at earthlink.net. How do you answer all those emails? You must be up 24 <laughs> plus to therapy. I know the pain that goes into the questions. And so I do it. Well, that you're going to get a lot of responses from this. It's amazing to me that you're able to do that, but I think you're, obviously, it's important work, very important work, and I want to mention the, the name of the book again, How to Fall Out of Love, Dr. Deborah Phillips. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was great having you. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. 
A new view of life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you struggling to find hope in the middle of adversity? How confident are you in dealing with your life challenges? Do you realize you have the ability to overcome your obstacles? You'll want to tune in to Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities. Louise will speak to inspiring guests who have helped others or managed to overcome the roadblocks that stood in the way of their life's success. Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities broadcasts live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Ann Fletcher. She is a health and medical author. Her new book is Inside Rehab, The Surprising Truth About Addiction Treatment and How to Get Help That Works. Uh, she took a what has been described as an eye-opening tour of addiction treatment centers or the addiction treatment industry, and she examined, I think, 15 addiction treatment facilities throughout the United States, inpatient programs, different kinds of programs, celebrity rehabs, 12-step programs, um, and she came up, with, I guess, with some startling statistics and information. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Anne. Good to be with you. Yeah, so you've done a lot of research in terms of all of this uh, I used to work in rehab, actually, as a, a clinician, a social worker with uh, in some of the 12-step programs. But uh, so, you know, I unfortunately, I know so many people who have kids, 20s, 30s, 20 or 30 years old, who go from one rehab center to the next. They have alcohol, drugs, usually those are the two that I'm familiar with. Um, so what, what, what's the story about these, these, these treatment centers, these rehab centers? Do they work? Don't they? It's, it's very sad. I interviewed too many people who went to rehab 10, even 20 times, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, people who spent, uh, there was one guy who spent $500,000, he and his family. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, another guy literally spent, his family spent close to a million dollars. And I'm, sadly, he died as I was writing the book from his addiction. Um, so, too many people have been to rehab too many times. May I ask you, how long ago was it that you worked in the field? Oh, I was in like the late 70s, early 80s, so it's okay. been a long time. You know, now... Well, you yeah. know, some things have changed, but yeah. I was surprised that... Now, I never worked in the field. I'm not an addiction treatment professional, but I did write a book about this, Sober for Good, and it came out in 2001. And I was talking with another author who wrote a book about recovery options. That's what part of what that book is about. 
and we were talking about how in the we, her book came out in two, around 2001, and we were talking about how little things have changed in the past ten more ten or so years. One expert, Dr. Thomas McClellan, who studies addiction treatment, what works and what doesn't, said to me, basically, addiction treatment is the same now as it was in the 1950s. And if you go to one treatment program, you've seen them all. I said, you've got to be kidding. So my getting to know him when I wrote Sober for Good is kind of what got me thinking about doing a book on addiction rehab. Um, And so what I decided to do was travel around the country, as you said, visit 15 programs coast to coast of all different types and sizes, but I also interviewed more than 100 people with recent rehab experiences, um, talked with more than 100 experts in the field and rehab staffers, some of who were still working in the field, some of whom talked to me off the record about their working in rehab experiences. I can't believe the letters I'm getting after writing the book from people who are still telling me their stories of unfortunate experiences and experts who are writing to me telling me about their unhappiness and dissatisfaction in the programs at which they're working. And, and as I understand it, they're all, which you've, you know, these 15 different rehab places are all very different uh, in terms of the kind of therapy or the kind of work that they do or the kind of counseling. Uh, so they're, they're not all the same. I know as a social worker, we, I mean, to be honest, it was sort of you were seeing somebody for counseling or a psychiatrist uh, made a referral. Rehab was kind of the last resort because you didn't know what to do. You had to put them in some kind of a facility, get them off the street, and it could be a very fancy place that you're getting somebody off of the street or not, but it was kind of like, well, they'll be okay if you can just get them in a more, uh, you know, secluded situation or they can't uh, get a hold of the drugs or the alcohol and... Um, yeah, well, you know, you're talking about people with severe addictions. And so so let's start with, okay, how many people have a substance use disorder, which is the technical term experts use, as you know, for people with a drug or alcohol problem? There are 22 million people, roughly, in the country who have a substance use disorder. So that would be a serious drug or alcohol problem. But that doesn't mean they all have severe addictions, you uh, substance problems, drug and alcohol problems fall on a huge continuum, and there's everything from relatively minor to very severe, and it's the very severe people who need treatment, need formal treatment, and, and many of them don't even need to go to rehab. We have a, I have a whole chapter on who really needs to be in rehab, but of the 22 million people um, and a lot of people do benefit from getting some kind of help, but the knee-jerk reaction tends to be send everybody to rehab. That's what you see on TV, and usually the stereotype in mind is go away to a 28-day rehab. That's what you see. You know, every celebrity, you know, kind of goes there, and that's what you see on TV shows. Of the 22 million people with a drug or alcohol problem, from relatively minor to very severe, only one out of ten, roughly, goes for help every year. So there's nine out of ten people who are not seeking help. Um, so that really was striking to me. You know, why aren't these people getting help, and how could we reach more people? Um, and so that's part of what spurred my interest. And you know, all of this business about celebrities going in and out of rehab, and the, I just, it just occurred to me that the public really isn't informed. I thought somebody needs to kind of go inside, see what's going on there. And this Dr. McClellan, for years, I befriended him after writing my first book, Sober for Good, and he started studying addiction treatment programs. He, he runs the Treatment Research Institute 
in Philadelphia, which is affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania, oh, about 10 years ago. So I want to really hone in on, because I, I will very often get, not necessarily colleagues, but friends, what are the best, in, you know, treatment centers, rehab. It's always a, t- it's very often a topic of a discussion. So I want to really specifically okay. hone in on these rehab centers. What's happening there? What are they doing or what are they not doing and well, why isn't it working? <clears throat> I purposely selected a variety of different places. Um, because I personally knew of some that were providing non-traditional care, that were providing non-12, when I say traditional approaches, that's most rehabs in the country provide group-based treatment, 12-step-based treatment that, you know, is going to, you know, use the 12 steps in some way. And um, most of the treatment is provided by addiction counselors. And I look closely at that model in the book, and it's great when it works, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, so that's what most treatment programs are. But I purposely went to some programs that don't use that model to look at what they were doing that was different. But, but most programs, whether it's outpatient where you go a couple of times a week for a couple of hours and go home at night, or residential treatment, are using that, it's called the Minnesota model, you know, in some shape or form, which is... AA based or referring P and or referring people to AA group treatment and um, you know a lot of it is lectures and classes and group counseling and it's not been shown to be all that effective so I started thinking about well what other kind of models might be out there a lot of what goes on one size fits all treatment um, kind of everybody gets the same you know one woman who went to a very prominent expensive program said I looked around at night and everybody had the same homework um, you know there I found that there's a huge gap between what the science says is effective and what goes on in practice whether right, so we're you're saying one size fits all and one size as we know doesn't fit all so there, there, it wasn't the treatment isn't specific to each patient or client, but also another thing uh, I understand that you found was, you know, there's this kind of a, a myth, I call it a myth, that there's always these very highly trained professionals who are helping you, and that's not necessarily the case either. Some of the people who are the, and I'm putting that in quote, counselors or helpers are kind of, you know, not necessarily well trained in in, 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 in what they're supposedly supposed to be doing with the, with the clients, uh, counseling That's right. Therapy. It was a huge eye-opener that... Um, uh, about 30 states in the country, um, a, a big report came from a group called CASA Columbia. You can look it up online. And they investigated the credentialing of addiction counselors in all the states across the country. And they found that about 30 states do not require a bachelor's degree to become an addiction counselor, a credential that's a certified or licensed addiction counselor. So that's 30 states. You don't have to have a bachelor's degree. You can have some states have no degree requirements, um, and the bulk of the treatment that's provided at addiction programs, most of what goes on is in the hands of addiction counselors. One expert said it's so sad that one of the most complex disorders in the mental health and medical system, that is addiction, is in the hands of some of the least trained among us. Most people with addictions also have some kind of psychiatric or psychological problem that goes along with us. So it's very sad. I'm hearing from mental health. I mean, health very profession. often you get bipolar. I mean, very often yeah. people depression, who are bipolar, depression. depression, you know, major clinical depressions. PTSD. So, PTSD. So what kinds of questions, let's say one 
needs to go in or feels one needs or has been recommended they go to a rehab center, what kind of questions do they need to ask to know whether this center or this rehab place is going to work for me? I mean, there you, I know you talk about in there, that there are several things that we can kind of ask ourselves and then right. ask, yeah, okay. Right, right, yes. So, but, you know, I didn't want to, the, the, I didn't want to just identify the problems. I wanted to offer, I, you know, there aren't always solutions, but I wanted to at least give resources. There's one section of the book that talks all about credentialing. Here are the things that you should look for. Um, many psychologists are not trained in addiction. Psychiatrists, physicians. So I offer, there, there's too much detail to go over now, but I have a whole section of the book where I offer specific kinds of credentialing within the various professions, psychology, psychiatry, the medical profession, where people go for advanced training in addiction. And you can go online and go to websites and find people with those credentials. Um, you're a social worker, right? Right. There's a specialty certification for social workers that have special training in addiction. Um, the questions that you can ask, I mean, I was floored when I interviewed people who had been to rehab when I said, what were the credentials of the people who provided the bulk of your counseling? It, well, I just assumed the person had a master's degree or at least a bachelor's degree. They didn't know, and then I would look up the credentials of the state where they went to rehab, no degree required. Okay. Um, so they never even asked. So before you go, you what are the credentials? Right. What about price? And I want to go on because yes, what about no. cost? There's a huge difference. Like say these 15 rehab centers, is it a huge difference in cost? Yes, there's an assumption that the more you spend, the better the treatment. And there's no correlation between what you pay and the quality of treatment. Now, sometimes an expensive rehab is very good, but just don't make that assumption because I found some very good community-based programs that provided very good comprehensive care. They had master's degree level. Okay, what the, the experts say, the minimum in the field should be a master's degree for an addiction counselor. That doesn't mean there aren't some good counselors with a bachelor's degree, but ideally in mental health professions, that's the minimum degree requirement. Um, in some of these community-based programs, a master's degree was required. They worked not just on, use, on dealing with addiction um, and using, you know, one question to ask would be, do you just use the 12 steps or do you use other strategies? Do you use cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a science-based approach that helps people deal with problems in their lives? What percentage of the time in, in therapy, in treatment, is going to be group-based versus how much individual counseling will I get? Some outpatient programs provided no individual counseling at all. To what extent will you address my co-occurring, will you assess me, number one, for co-occurring psychological or psychiatric problems? And if I have them, will you provide me with therapy, with a credentialed mental health professional who will work with me to address those problems? Don't let you need integrated treatment for those problems, which means they will address both at the same time. Don't let them tell you, first we need to address your addiction, then we'll address your psychiatric or psychological problems. No, they both have to be addressed at the same at time the same for addiction time. treatment to be effective. So, Anne, what about the, do you ask them about the recidivism rate? You mentioned that people go in and out, especially you read about it, the celebrities and movie stars, but um, is that important in terms of? You can ask, but you're not going to get an get answer. The answer. No. Well, you know, and the problem, part of the problem is the nature of addiction um, because, um, you know, what is success? 
it's usually been gauged as abstinence. But, you know, that's kind of an unfair question because most people, it's, you know, it's viewed as a chronic disorder now, especially severe addiction. And um, using less in some studies is a criterion of success. But how do you measure that? Is it quality of life that we're looking at? Some experts are working on better measures of how we look at outcome and treatment programs, but there are very few that actually have legitimate scientific ways of measuring success. What about the families? What about the families? Do some rehab centers involve families, spouses, partners, children, and others not? Most of them do and say they do, but they're not using science-based approaches for dealing with families. One of the 15 programs I visited used a science-based approach for working with families. Most of them have psycho, what they call psychoeducational family weeks or days, you know, like in an outpatient program, it'll be Wednesday night. There's no evidence that they're effective. They're usually just educational about the disease of addiction. The most effective approach in research studies has been shown to be it's called the CRAFT approach. Um, a book that I can recommend that lay people can buy and use is called Get Your Loved One Sober, which educates people about communication strategies you can use if you have a loved one in your life with addiction, and it uses craft strategies. Um, and uh, there was only one program I went to, Practical Recovery, that was using that approach. Um, so they're not using science-based approaches for families, but it is important to involve the family, and there are approaches you can use to get a loved one into treatment that are more effective than interventions, and craft it gets about 70% of people into treatment when they participate in it. Have you ever, or have you thought about, do you rate any of these maybe, or have you rated them specifically? Uh, Which ones are the best, or there is no best? No, I don't do that. You know, it's a matter of finding the right fit for you, and that's what I try to do in the book by giving the guidelines. You know, here are the questions to ask if you have a loved one with psychiatric problems. Here are the questions to ask if you're looking for an adolescent program. And there are long lists of questions. You have to think about the things that are most important to you. There are, when you're... Thinking about, you asked about families, there are a number of excellent approaches for adolescents that have been shown repeatedly to be effective um, in studies. Not a single adolescent program I visited was using those, but they do exist, and I offer those resources in the book. They're, you know, it's, it's a long list of names, but um, they're out there. Yeah, um, and they can be found. People, and I've, and I've, I've, this is just really not in terms of professionally, but just as as, as friends. Uh, you know, where should uh, you know my son or my daughter has a drinking problem? What's the best place to go to? Is the first question. You know, well, ask. the first thing that I would do is don't have the knee jerk reaction that everybody needs to go to rehab. Um, you know, if somebody has a really serious problem, they may need to go to detox, you know, and that's where you start. But if a person isn't, you know, isn't at imminent risk because of their substance use, drug or alcohol use, one of the things that's greatly undersold and underrated is going for individual therapy with, an, with a specialist who has, with a mental health professional, such as you, you know, a, a social worker, a psychologist, um, uh, uh, an advanced degree addiction counselor, um, I can think that I, I, I overcame a drinking problem, and that's how I did it. I found a psychologist, Ph.D.-level psychologist, who had expertise with addictions. He had advanced training. Um, I live in a rural university town of 50,000 people. I can think right now of two people who have private practices where they will work with you one-on-one if you have an addiction, and they also are mental health professionals, licensed 
Um, so don't, you know, many people told me they did better um, with that kind of approach, and there are some programs that offer a much higher percentage of individual counseling rather than group counseling. So that's an important question to ask because not everybody does well in group treatment. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, and I think that's so too. And I know one of the things when I was doing clinical work, that, and you said you were in therapy or in counseling with a psychologist, PhD a psychologist, there was always this, well, yes, you can go to individual counseling, but then it also you have to go to a, in conjunction with that, it's not going to work unless you're in a 12-step program as well. Not true. One of the saddest stories in the book was a young man who was addicted to opioids, painkiller medications. He was in treatment with a licensed addiction counselor who also had a master's degree, a licensed professional counselor, and so she was a therapist with a mental health degree. He was doing terrifically with her, but he was having trouble weaning himself off the drugs, and there was not um, a Suboxone treatment program, which is a medication that people can be used. It's like methadone. And there wasn't near one near where he lived. So she referred him to a doctor to see if he would wean him off the medication because it's really hard to get off that drug. You can't go cold turkey. Mm-hmm. And the doctor refused to treat him unless he went to a group program, which would have told him he had to go to AA, and this young man wasn't interested in that. He was doing very well, and he said, nope, you can't do it without group treatment. Well, he was already doing extremely well with a counselor with expertise with addictions, and he, the young man was angry, walked out the door, and he proceeded to wean himself with a great deal of physical distress off the medication. And to this day, I, I know the young man. He's, he's been off the drug for three years now, but he went, it's very physically uncomfortable to detox off those kinds of drugs without some kind of weaning or suboxone or methadone. Why and, do you think, Ann, that we get into, or the profession, or what is it? Is it, I'm always like, is it all about somehow the money, the why, why there isn't the flexibility within this, you know, in the recovery process that it's one size fits all? Where's that coming from? That Well, that particular case, I think, was just lack of education. You know, the medical profession is not educated about addiction. Um, it's just, you know, of course you have to go to rehab, you know, and of course you need the 12 steps. And the reality is that the 12 steps are wonderful when they work. Um, excuse me, a lot of people don't realize that the 12 steps are not treatment. They are a self-help group. The problem is that the treatment industry, because it really grew out of recovering addicts helping other recovering addicts, but the, the treatment industry adopted a self-help program, AA, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, and that was the problem. AA is wonderful as a self-help group, but when it became part of treatment, a lot of problems occurred that I talk about in the book. But um, seven out of... Uh, up to eight people, five to eight out of every ten people who are referred to AA from treatment drop out within nine months. So my concern isn't that AA isn't good. AA is great when it works. But it's what happens to the people for whom it doesn't work. I went to treatment programs that never tell people about AA alternatives like Smart Recovery, Women for Sobriety, Secular organizations for sobriety. These are alternative self-help support groups that don't use the AA philosophy. I met treatment professionals who never heard of those support groups. They will tell you that something is wrong with you if you don't buy the 12 steps. Well, you know, if you go to a surgeon and heart disease, you have heart disease, and the first 
once or twice that you have a stent or an angioplasty and it doesn't work, the doctor doesn't keep doing it over and over again and saying something's wrong with you. He changes the approach, and that doesn't happen in rehab. Yeah. So we have to, that word keeps coming back to me, but like flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we know about approaches that do work, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, and I found programs that were really based on that instead of the 12 steps. 12-step-based programs use some cognitive behavioral therapy and what's called motivational interviewing. These are science-based approaches. But it's a, it's, there, there's a smattering of it. It's not a, a focus of the program. The focus of the program is getting people into AA. There are other programs that I visited where they don't focus on the 12 steps. Instead, they're using life-building skills like cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing as the focus of the program. So there are other approaches that work. It's just that people are often not told about them, and they're not in the hands of skilled therapists. Often when programs say they're using scientifically-backed approaches, they're not using them the way they were designed in research studies. So in other words, buyer beware, I guess, is really what I'm hearing. It really is. It's not, yeah. um, it's not a regulated industry. Um, it's, it's really, really sad. Um, even the credentials that we think should protect us, like licensing of addiction counselors, um, even credentialing of addiction treatment programs, I hate to say this, but state credentials, a state licensed program, or some of the, um, there's credentials like CARF and CA, it's an acronym, C-A-R-F and J-C-A-H-O are kind of quality control standards, but they don't assure that a program is using science-based approaches. Um, I, well, what would you say, Anne, because we have like two, yes. you know, two minutes left, a minute and a half, but anyway, what about, because I want this last question, what about you find yourself in a program and you it's not working? Do you get out? or Because when you get out, they blame it on you, I think, or on the patient or the client. Well, they just didn't want to go through the whole program and, you know, yeah, that's their Yeah, problem. or you have trouble when you're in there and you have a slip and then, you know, you, you get kicked out because of your disease. Whoever heard of such a thing? Ask before you go, what is your refund policy? Because I had people who had trouble and they wanted to leave and then they couldn't get their money back. Ask the question before you get there. What is your refund policy if I want to leave? Can I get my money back for the unused portion of treatment? It's critical. Um, the last chapter has all kinds of questions about um, the guy who went to rehab 20 times who learned the hard way about these kinds of things. That is learning the hard way. Yeah. I want to mention <laughs> Inside Rehab in your book has been described as a valuable roadmap for navigating the multiple pathways and programs dealing with the problems of substance abuse, and I would agree with that after talking to you. Inside Rehab, The Surprising Truth About Addiction Treatment and How to Get Help That Works. Uh, Ann Fletcher, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. It was wonderful talking with you. I hope more people get help. Yes, I do too. Good information. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.